Ladies and gentlemen, what is going on out there? It's springtime. I hope that you are out chasing those gobblers around. I hope that you're fishing. I hope that you're camping. Do something outside. Get out of the house. The weather's nice. Unless you live in Nebraska, then the weather's getting shitty again. So, but yeah, get outside. Good time to be out there with the kiddos. So we hope that everything's going good for you. And thank you for listening to this podcast. This show is brought to you by Dive Bomb Industries. You better jump on some dive bombs because they go in a hurry. It's already April and people are getting gearing up for this upcoming waterfowl season. So you better jump on the ball and get you some dive bombs soon. Not another, there's not a better bang for your buck in the waterfowl industry than dive bomb silhouettes. They, not, not even close. They pack up nice. They look great. You can store them in the off-season. We're in the off-season now. You can store them. You don't have to worry about having a whole grain silo for a whole bunch of decoys. And, like Jeff said, good bang for your buck. So be sure go to divebombindustries.com and get what you need for the waterfowl season. It's going to be here before we know it. It's turkey season. This podcast is brought to you by Boss Shot Shells. They've got the Boss Tom out there. Shoot that long beard in the face with Boss Tom. All American made. You don't see that very often. Made right there in Michigan. Brandon's got a lot of stuff going on. He's a good guy. Call him up and get you Boss Tom. Or they've just announced that they're going to start copper plating all of their BBs. Hold the tighter pattern. Uh, he said in his post, it is close to 100% of the pellets at 30 yards. So copper plating is coming next, and they're not going to charge you any more. So great company, great customer service. Go to BossShotShields.com. Get your ammunition from those guys, all American-made. Speaking of American-made, this podcast is brought to you by 737 Duck Calls. Made in Oklahoma from the boys from Oklahoma who can make a duck call. So they've got uh, they've got your duck calls, your goose calls, whatever you're looking for. Those guys can hook you up at 737duckcalls.com. They're cranking away on calls. I know that. I see their Instagram stories every day, and they're they're cranking them out. Get so, the old number one. The old number one. The way to go. This podcast is also brought to you by Lucky Duck. They got your turkey decoys. Collapsible, good looking turkey decoys. Also, they've got your spinners that you're going to need for this waterfowl season. Look no further. Lucky Duck is a one-stop shop. Predator calls, they've got it all. Waterfowl, turkey, predator calls, what more can you look for in a company? They've got it all. Great people. Great product. Was in Wisconsin this weekend at a – or was it Minnesota? Wisconsin, I think. Wisconsin at a show. Had a picture of Haley with some guys (laughs) who listeners to the podcast. They badgered her, I guess. Oh, yeah. So, good company, good people. Be sure to check out Lucky Duck. This show is also brought to you by Sea Light LEDs. Illuminate the sky. Illuminate the darkness, I guess we should say. Put them on your trailers, your trucks, your boats. See what you're doing. No more fumbling around in the dark. Sea Light LEDs are the way to go. For sure. Look no further. Go to them. Buy them. Also, this podcast is brought to you by Athlon Optics. Great binoculars, great scopes, bargain price. Can't beat it. Athlon Optics is what I use, what I'm going to use this turkey season to spot those long beards, doing their little deal, and then I'm going to creep up on them and slap them in the face. So Athlon Optics, the way to go, make a great product. 
Also, this show is brought to you by William and Chris Vineyards. Texas made wine right there in high Texas. You can buy them at HEB, Central Market, Whole Foods. Chris is uh, a good good buddy of ours, makes a great product. He's out there peddling that wine right now. I saw he was at HEB not too long ago. Shaking babies and kissing hands, what he's doing. Selling wine. <laughs> Jesus turned water to wine. That's right. <laughs> he's turning beer drinkers into wine drinkers. That's right. So, Or you can buy it online and they'll ship it to you, williamchriswines.com. Last but not least, this show is brought to you by Stanfield Hunting Outfitters. The OG of the waterfowl world. Somebody called you an up-and-coming. Up-and-comer. <laughs> yeah, a guy called me the other day. Yeah, I know you're an up-and-coming guide service. I know you're yep. up-and-coming. Up-and-coming for 27 years. We'll get there one day. Uh, got turkey hunts going on right now, so if you're if you're in the market for that, get a hold of us. And then after that, believe it or not, it's dove season. Thank gosh I'm ready for it. Get through turkey season, and it's dove season. I'm going to old Canada this year. Are you? Yep. Well, good. You are too. Um, we'll see about that. You got to start cracking that whip around the house, Andy. We'll see about that. So, uh, what the hell's that got to do with our company, Jeff? I have no clue. I was just excited about dove season. Oh. It got me thinking about it. I got to go dove yeah. hunting, and then I got to go to Canada and go yep. field duck hunting. Dove season will be here in September. So, if you're looking for that corporate event, you can't beat our prices. What are our prices, Jeff, for a weekend of dove hunting? Weekend dove hunting, $450. That's meals, lodging Friday and Saturday night, dinner Friday night, three meals Saturday, breakfast Sunday morning, get a hunt Friday, Saturday, and Sunday for $450. Can't beat it. No, it's a hell of a deal. Bring that uh, bring that big corporate group out here. We'll have a great time. Maybe you can watch us uh, record a podcast or two while you're out here. So that and then waterfowl season. Yep. It's, it's, it's all laid out there. I can't see the finish line, but I know it's there. It'll be waterfowl season before you know it. So uh, we got all that you're looking for. Look us up, stanfieldhunting.com, or call us, 940-658-3172. Jeff will call you back or answer the phone if he's out here. I'm always in the office. Always in the office. All right. So that's it. That's all of our great sponsors. Be sure to check these guys out. Okay, here we go. Three, two, one. Boom. Welcome to the Big Honker Podcast. I'm Jeff Stanfield. I'm Andy Shaver. And on the line today with us, we have Jim Kern of Emu Outfitting, the Texas Rangers, Pro Baseball, and about everything else you could think of. Jim, how you doing? Good, good. It's a nice morning here. Yes, it is. Hey, uh, you been in the Amazon fishing? I uh, was in the Amazon in February and then went to Argentina for Dorado and high-volume dove shooting, and a year away, a week later, for uh, Dorado wolfish and high-volume dove. Dorado, huh? So, so when did you get back? Uh, I've been back about three weeks. You been to a baseball game yet? 
I have not. I got to watch 3,000 games up close and personal. And, <laughs> unless, I, unless I'm participating or doing broadcasting, it, uh, I don't go to many of them anymore, to be honest. How much broadcasting have you done? Uh, I worked for 12 years for Prime Sports and Fox Sports Southwest, uh, doing mostly college games, uh, doing color, Big 12, uh, at the time, uh, the Southeast Conference, and uh, done about 25 Major League Baseball games, but did that from about 1998 to 2010. Now, does that help bridge, the, once you're done, does that help bridge the gap between uh, your playing days and, and kind of what lies ahead, or does it not even come close to filling the void? No, it just... Uh, uh, it was something I wanted to do, enjoy doing, talking about the game. Um, I enjoy participating in the game. If I can participate in some way, it's hard for me to, or any ex-player to sit there and just watch the game because you analyze it, tear it apart, what they should have done, what they shouldn't have done, and takes all the fun out of it. You were a hell of a pitcher. You don't. At today's market, you would probably be making about $10 million a year. Did you get close to that when you were playing? Uh, I was in 1979. I had made my third consecutive American League All-Star team and was American League Relief Pitcher of the Year and made 325 uh, the following year. That's, that's the most I ever made. When I entered the game in 2014 in the major, I'm sorry, in 1990. Well, boy, I'm sitting here. <laughs> I'm old. 1974, when I came up to the major leagues, uh, minimum salary was 14000 Wow. You guys sure paved a path for the guys today to make a whole lot of money. Well, we did. I sat out two strikes and uh, lost a considerable amount of money. We sat out as long as six weeks. Uh, you know, and people complain about the amount of money the players are making at this point, but I have yet to see any major league club go under, and no. you have to wonder what the owners are making. Right. Now, were you on board with the strike, or was this something that, that you just had to do because you were part of this organization? Well, we were part of the union at that point and showing solidarity. Right. Uh, in, in the stroke in 81, I had signed a, a contract, five-year contract at 80, and uh, so, you know, I sat out six weeks there and lost a considerable amount of money, but it was a matter of showing solidarity and, and being able to achieve the free agency they have now. Now, wh what what is it like being in the mind of a relief pitcher? Because, I mean, you're, i got to imagine you're not coming in in the most favorable conditions. Well, you really aren't. Uh, you know, you have to have a particular personality uh, to be able to function in that pressure situation because you're down in the bullpen and uh, you've never heard of anybody getting promoted to the bullpen. You're usually, <laughs> you know, you, you're settled down there as you're having struggling as a starting pitcher or uh, you're able to feel a particular role. My forte was a fastball. I could throw it about as hard as anybody. And, uh, I, you know, I was inherently wild. When I was 14, I was six foot four and weighed 158 pounds. If I turned sideways, the only shadow on the ground was a pair of lips, you know. <laughs> but, and, and I just didn't have the body mass to be able to control those long arms. 
And uh, so the plus to that was that I never kept my hand on top of the ball. My forearm wasn't that strong. So what happened is my hand would drop. It would make the ball move as it came in. It would sink. It would sail. Um, but I was inherently wild. I spent seven years in the minor leagues uh, learning how to control the fastball. And, uh, you know, I tell people I was so wild I got credit for a no-hitter when I get pity. But, <laughs> but, but you know, the mindset um, for for a relief pitcher, uh, you, you just, you're a spectator for seven, eight innings. Mm-hmm. And then you come into the game and you're in a pressure situation. And, and you know, the way you psychologically work this, and I told myself, is, hell, that's not my runner. On, on base, that's right. not my area, let's just go get them. Right. Uh, that wasn't the way you really felt, but that was what you told yourself to be able to work under the pressure situations. And it takes a particular personality. I mean, you really have to um, have, have the personality that you really don't care. You're able to flick the switch from spectator to uh, a player, Um in five to ten pitches in the bullpen and then come into the game. Yeah, I mean, and, and do y'all look at the lineup whenever you're uh, whenever you're sitting in the bullpen and you kind of get a feel if they're going to call your number or not? Well, yeah, you do. You know your position. You know, if you're a mop-up man early in the game, you, know, you get behind, you'll get a chance of being in, and the short man won't. Uh, if it's the fifth inning or sixth inning and it's ten to nothing, uh, you know, you probably won't get in. If the game is close, uh, you start paying more attention to what a particular batter is doing in their ADs. Uh, a lot of time, you'll get good hitters like Carew or Rose or Brett Mattingly. These type of people in my time frame, they were always dangerous. Mm-hmm. But then you had a lot of other average players. If they were hot, uh, they were much more dangerous than if, if they weren't. So consequently, you paid attention to who was having a good night, uh, who was swinging the bat good, who was looking like they were having trouble. Uh, so you had a general idea of, of how to pitch and who to pitch to. Did you have anybody in particular that just owned you, and did you have anybody that you owned? Yeah, uh, I had uh, uh, you know a little little piss hitter owned me, Mark Belanger from Baltimore. Mark hit about 214 lifetime, and I think he hit 619 off me lifetime. <laughs> um, if I was playing against Baltimore, Earl Weaver was one of the first ones to ever keep books on what particular hitters hit against particular pitchers. And you could have Boo Powell, Frank Robinson on the bench, and I'd see Mark Belanger. Blade never really hit the ball well, uh, but he just made contact, and I threw a good fastball, and when he made contact, he just flared over the infield. Mm. Uh, him and, and Carlton Fisk, I uh, had a lot of trouble with Fisk. Fisk had a little tight swing, and um, I made a living on the inside half the corner with the 96, 98-mile-an-hour gas, and uh, uh, Fisk could take that inside pitch and drive it over shortstop, so he caused me trouble. Uh, the Boston lineup was interesting. Didn't have a lot of trouble with the Skrimsky or Rice. Both excellent hitters. It's just that they like to extend their arms to hit, and I could usually beat them inside. Uh, by the time they extended their arms, the ball was on top of them. The people with a little short um, uh, stroke 
are the ones that gave me a lot of trouble. Uh, I didn't have much trouble with Jackson. I think in 13 years, Reggie hit one home run off me, and that was my first year. Uh, I actually beat him with a fastball down the way, and he drove it just inside of the left field foul pole for a home run. But uh, it was it was the little punching duties that usually I had more trouble with at the big priest wingers. Right. So when you come in, and uh, do you try to set the tone early? Uh, as soon as you step on the mound, do you try to kind of you know give them something inside, brush them off the plate a little bit? Do you start, do you try to get in their head that way? Early? Well, you, you tried you, you tried to do it long before that. Um, you know, when I got to the major leagues, I had one attribute, and that was I could throw the hell out of the ball. I wasn't a terribly good athlete compared to the top one percent in the world I was playing against, and so it behooved me to, you know, act like I was crazy on the mound. I never took the card in the bullpen. I ran as fast as I could. Uh, when I get there, I would scream at myself. Uh, and, <laughs> yes, what you did is is you established the inside half the plate. Uh, and there's only one rule when you pitch inside, isn't it? And that's if you miss, you miss off the plate, not over the plate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the hitters get themselves hit usually – when they're guessing on the outside to have the plate, so they're driving their shoulder, their front shoulder into the outside to plate, uh, being able to hit that pitch down there. And when the pitch is up and in, and they've made that weight shift toward the outside half the corner, they're going to wear the fastball occasionally. Did, you ever get in a, um, was you in a, any brawls, Jim? I'm sorry? Did you, was you ever any bitch clearing brawls? Oh, yeah. I mean, I had spent six years in the Marine Corps Reserves at that time, and getting in a fight didn't bother me. And my attitude was I could throw the ball about 98, and you want to charge them out, fine. We'll get this over with. And eventually, you got to get back in a batter's box. <laughs> my, my, my idea is let's, let's see who gets tired of this game quickest. <laughs> One of my favorite stories you, you, you've told up here before is a story about when Fergie comes to Texas and you take him to eat dinner. Are you invited? Tell, well, that, tell that story. Fergie yeah, Jenkins. Yeah, uh, Fergie is one of my best friends. Fergie was an absolute class individual. He won 20 games with the Cubs five consecutive years. And uh, In spring training that year, when I got traded from the Indians to the Rangers, the first time you get traded, you know, it's like walking into the enemy's camp. Hi, I'm on your side. Yeah. And um, I, I drive into spring training in Pompano Beach, and, there was this bass boat sitting behind a pickup with a Canadian license plate. And I go in the clubhouse and, you know, it was definitely had to be Fergie with a Canadian license plate. And I said, uh, where are we going fishing this afternoon? I had never met him before. And he looked at me and he said, uh, Everglades. So, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what Fergie was like. Well, Fergie and his, his wife and kids come over and, uh, me not thinking in my infinite wisdom, uh, you know, we have lunch and we have ribs and watermelon. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, 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 again, you're in Texas, you yeah. know, so bar- barbecue. Uh, when we left, my wife looked at me and she says, uh, you know, I was just thinking, uh, you think you was offended by that? And I thought, oh, man, here we go. <laughs> you know, and, and I mentioned something to Bernie, kind of, you know, like, uh, sorry about that. And, oh, hell no. No problem. The kids had a great time. So, I mean, that that was Fergie. In this day and age, I probably would have gotten 
written up in the Inquirer or something for <laughs> being an idiot. Yeah. But, uh, you know, back in that time frame, there was nothing meant in this uh, politically correct stuff. Is You know, you, you get lost in it occasionally. You're looking for an excuse to scream at somebody. Yeah, you'd you'd have made uh, front page news with that story in today's world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and you know, out of out of inherent stupidity, not thinking about what I was doing. That's just you know, here in Texas, we have barbecue, and it's uh, 140 degrees in the summer, and for so for dessert, we sat outside and had watermelon. Shit, sorry. So, sounds like a fantastic meal to me. I eat that every time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know. Now, Jim, I, I've known you a long time. I, when I first got in the hunting business, I met you, and we've done business back and forth for years, and you always got a, li- a lot of stories and a lot of cool friends and stuff. Um, how, how, tell everybody how you got in the hunting, because you, you own Emu Outfitting out of Arlington, Texas, and you sell Amazon trips, but you sell trips all over, and you've been everywhere. And t- t- Talk about how you got in the outfitting business from the being a pro baseball player. Well, I had, um, from the time I was probably eight years old whenever my father went hunting or fishing he always asked me if i wanted to go we were born and raised in mid-michigan and dad loved to deer hunt and grouse hunt ice fish fish during the summer and uh you know it's just something i love to do uh in the winters playing baseball it was custom made for me because uh, we started at the end of february in spring training ended the first of october about that time hunting season started and I do a lot of hunting in the fall. I had made trips to Idaho and Montana hunting elk uh, with outfitters and such. And when I retired in 86, uh, you know, I, we started an outfitting business. We started running hunting and uh, more hunting leases in West Texas than anything else. We'd lease a big ranch and split it up into pastures and lease it out to a group of hunters or we would take and run guided hunts on these ranches. So naturally within a few years, it morphed into booking trips to Alaska. I had a good friend up there. Uh, first time I went up there was 89. And then in the nineties, late nineties, uh, went to Brazil in the Amazon with a group, took them down there, peacock bass fishing, and then the, the guy that I had gone with uh, hired me to start an American office for him, marketing, and uh, did that from oh, 80, uh, what? I did that from 98 until 2003, and then uh, couldn't get along with that guy, so I quit. I didn't like the way he was running a business. And then the gentleman I had hunted with and fished with in Alaska uh, hired me to guide fishing trips in Alaska uh, in about 2005. Did that every summer. And then I started hunting brown bear up there uh, with this guy. And then in 2010, another operation in Brazil hired me, offered me too much money to start an American marketing office for him. Did that till 2013. Um and again, didn't like the way he was running it, so I quit that, went back to Alaska, and managed that lodge for a number of years, uh, and guided hunting and fishing. We had oh, probably 20 employees, uh, three float planes, uh, and we'd go up there in late April and come back in October. And then during the winter in November, I guide for 
elk and mule deer in Montana and Idaho and then back to Texas marketing. So I've done it forever. Right now we do more uh, peacock bass fishing in Brazil's Amazon. Sent 140 people down there last year. Uh, we do Dorado wolf fish and high-volume dove hunting in Argentina and Uruguay, and then I'll be going back to Alaska with the group to the lodge in August. So it's just what I've loved all my life, and it's a hell of an excuse for a job. Now, how uh, how safe is, is Brazil? Any, any problems that you've ran into over the years down there? No, southern Brazil... Uh, has got the bad reputation, Sao Paulo, Rio. Yeah. Um, you know, you fly into New York, you see a lot of skyscrapers. You fly into Sao Paulo, and you see skyscrapers to the horizon. You're, you're looking at 15, 20 million people, uh, and there's, you know, there is a crime problem down in southern Brazil. In northern Brazil, we fly from Miami to Manaus, the old rubber capital of the world, 800 miles up the Amazon, it's a city of two million, and there really you don't have that crime problem. Um, and from there, we spend one night, and then we fly another three hundred miles up into the rainforest, where we have these floating camps, uh, and two hundred and fifty square foot uh, floating cabins, air conditioned, the whole works. And the neat thing about that is, is we fish private Indian lands. We lease over eight million acres of private Indian lands that we have exclusive fishing rights in. So you don't see anybody else. Right. The first time I went there in 97 with Bobby Witt and Roger Pavlik and a group, um, you know, there was only two or three operations on the whole river. Now on the main river, there's over 80 river boats running any place from six to 30 people a week. And there's a lot of pressure on the main river channels. And the fishing and the size of fish have gone down considerably. And that's that's why I book for these people that run the private operations in Indian lands. We fly directly from Manaus by caravan float plane into these locations and then fish there for six days. And you never see anybody but your people, with the exception of a few Indians hand-lining for piranha. Piranha. How big does piranha yeah. get? Oh. Piranha, you know, there's essentially three species. There's a little red piranha that's the nasty ones that'll weigh about a pound. Uh, in our area, we have more white and black piranha. Uh, pretty big. I mean, they're about the size of a five or six pound crappie. Holy cow! Some bitches eat your arm off. Are they are they that are they that aggressive? Uh, uh, you know, basically the basic rule of thumb down there is in any place you cast, you'll catch a piranha, uh, and the basic rule of thumb is if the water is moving like a, a river, there really isn't a piranha problem. We'll swim in the water every night. You don't want to get in bleeding, needless to say. But uh, uh, if the water is still like a landlocked lagoon, you stay the hell out of the water. So they would they would kill a person then? Uh, yeah, they they would. These landlocked lagoons, as the water comes up during the rainy season, which is usually March through uh august uh the water will come up 20 to 30 vertical feet wow. and floods the rainforest yeah. and makes these lagoons and as it goes down in dry season it landlocks these lagoons the piranha beating everything in them and uh yeah they'll i i would think given an opportunity 
in the right situation, yeah, they can clean your ass pretty quick. Holy <laughs> shit! Have you have you ever seen them eating anything when when you're down there? Oh yeah, we've we've released peacock bass. I can remember one that Roland Martin released uh, down there, and uh, it had been caught in the gills and was bleeding some. And he released it, probably a 15, 16-pound fish, an ice fish. And about two minutes later, the skeleton and head comes floating back up. And oh, that was shit. all there was. Oh, Damn. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, they, they take little bitty bites, but mm-hmm. there might be 50, 100 in the school. And, you know, they, they just go wacko. Might be the hell of a way to go. God, that might be worse mm. than getting stabbed to death. Some bitch. Oof. Yeah, the ultimate weight loss program. <laughs> <laughs> what What about, see, I'm scared to death of freaking snakes. So that's yeah. one reason. You talked to me and Michelle one time about going down there and just going and staying and not fishing. We just wanted to go look sightsee. But freaking snakes, man. In the jungle, all the crap you see, do you, do you run into a lot of the venomous snakes? Well, no, it, it's interesting. We're, you know, there's. This area has never been timbered, never had a road punched into it. It looks much like the one the Portuguese saw it 400 years ago. Wow. Uh, and and so on the main river channels and low water, you haven't got many swampy areas. So I think I've only seen one or two big snakes, anacondas or whatever, uh, uh, down there in my 37 trips. Uh, and you don't see many water snakes uh next to the water now if you want to walk back in the rainforest yeah there's some real interesting guys like bushmasters and uh you know 30 lances and uh but you see very very few snakes and the other amazing thing is these blackwater rivers were fishing for peacock bass uh they leach tannins out of the leaves the bark of the rainforest and they create weak humic acid. This water is almost distillation here, but it looks like dark tea. And the mosquito larva can't live in this humic acid. So basically, you see no mosquitoes on the river, uh, you know, which is one of the amazing things of the Amazon. Uh, now, if you get down on the Amazon itself, it's not a blackwater river. It carries a lot of silt, looks milky. There are mosquitoes there, but on these blackwater rivers like the Rio Negro, uh, you see very little and no mosquitoes. Do you, do you see people living like the bush people that you see on TV, just tribes of people? Do you run into that? Yeah, on these on these tributaries we fish, uh, there's usually one village on the tributaries, uh, and they'll they'll be thatched roofs, and usually the uh, uh, huts are elevated. Uh, keep them out of the water in the high water season but the people aren't are not primitive per se uh when we lease uh these lands and the indians part of our deal is we furnish them with a satellite system and computers so their kids can finish their high school online and not have to leave the village uh to a bigger city which is the cause of trouble Mm -hmm. um to, to finish her education. So you, you'll see them back there uh, fishing. This is the tropical fish capital of the world. All your tetras and cardinal fish and angel fish all come from this area. So they net those, but basically they're subsistence. They're, they're very good people. So, so that's, that's the, the negotiating tool. Whenever you're trying to lease up these lands, it's we'll give you a computer and internet so that your kid can stay here and finish his high school career. 
and and a considerable amount of money. Yeah, <laughs> the fishing is good for the Amazon, like the hunting is or was for Africa for all those years. It does a lot for their economy. Well, it 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 is, and and it's like uh, the difference in your situation uh, where you goose hunt. The difference between hunting a public refuge where there is no lottery system and everybody can just go and come as they want, and hunting hunting private lands where you paid the the farmer to hunt his lands and nobody else can hunt it uh that's very much the same scenario here you're going to scare all the geese off these public lands if you don't have a lottery system to limit the number of people to come in and they're all going to move over to the private lands and get hunted maybe once a week or once every two weeks it, that that's the same scenario and that's why i i book and and run our fishing trips in these private lands there's a huge difference now what how long are you in alaska for uh when i managed to lodge up there or and guided we would go up the end of april and come back the middle of october uh this year i'm going up for 10 days in the middle of august what's the weather going to be like in the middle of august up in alaska Weather will be nice. Uh, Alaska is interesting. We're about 180 air miles southwest of Anchorage between Katmai National Park and Lake Clark National Park. Uh, beautiful area, just about 15 miles inland from Cook Inlet Coast right there in the Chugash Mountains. And we sit on the north end of Lake Iliamna, which is 85 miles long, 20 miles wide, 1,100 feet deep. Um, it's it's beautiful area up there. May, I really think, late May, early June are the nicest weather up there. Uh, you get into June, July, the weather is nice. I mean, you get up in the morning, can be 45, 50, might be any place from 55 to 75 during the day. Uh, you will get storms coming in and out. Uh, and it's funny, some years you'll have a lot of rain, some years you'll have next to none. But um, the weather is quite nice. In August, it'll be nice. In middle of September, late September, it starts to deteriorate. Uh, people used to ask me about bear hunting. We hunted in, in early uh, 10th to oh, 20, 25th of May in the spring season, and then 10th of September through, ten, uh, I'm sorry, 20 September through 20 October in the fall. And I tell them in the spring, the weather was bad, getting better. In the fall, the weather was bad, getting worse. <laughs> yeah, I, I got to imagine October, you know, you're kind of, it can get a little dicey on whether or not you can get out of there, huh? Well, it's, uh, it comes in flurries. It's like a Texas right. winter, yeah. you know, we, we get three days of winter, then it goes back to summer. Right. Uh, so when your big storms come in, uh, I've been there with 70, 80 mile an hour winds. Mm. Um, but then again, the next day, well, we hunted one group uh, one year that wanted to hunt in October, which is late. Uh, most of the fish, the sockeyes are dying and the rainbows are going back into the lake. Uh, you know, we tried to discourage them. They were from Russia, this group, and we tried to discourage them from coming, but it was a guy's birthday like the 8th or 10th of October, and they wanted to fish that week. And so we talked to him about bad weather. And finally, the guy says, bad weather doesn't bother us. We're from Siberia. <laughs> so, okay, 10th of October works. Yeah. 
you know, and it would, we had exceptionally nice weather that week, but there would be so much frost on the wings of the plane that the beaver is sitting out in front of the lodge that we're using that we had to turn it into the sun and wait till 10 o'clock until the sun had melted all the frost off the wings before we could go anyplace. Nasty time of year in southwest Alaska is January and February. You got any good bear stories, Jim? Oh, you know, the, uh, the bear stories is interesting. It, uh, it, it's interesting. I had guided for whitetail and elk and mule deer all over the lower 48. And, you know, it's exciting guiding. I enjoy it, showing people things they really have trouble seeing uh, by themselves because they're looking for an entire deer instead of a, a horizontal plane and a vertical uh, field of trees that doesn't belong there and then picking out the deer. Uh, but when you go to Alaska and you start hunting for brown bear, I mean, these things will stand on their hind feet and be seven, eight foot feet tall and weigh a thousand pounds. And, uh, when you poke a hole in them, they tend to lose their sense of humor. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's really interesting when you're hunting something that you realize if you screw this up, it can eat your ass. <laughs> so it, it puts a whole new bend on guiding. Yeah. Um, we were sitting in a blind one day and I, again, there we hunted private Indian lands too. And so we were on the salmon stream and the bears would come down and whack their salmon. And you fished all summer in the same area. So you had a good idea which bear was coming down where, and they all had their own established fishing spots. Uh, and so we're sitting in the blind one day, and uh, we see this brown bear coming from downriver and working the bank looking for salmon coming toward us. And he's probably 250 yards off when we first see him. And you can tell the difference between a big bear and a little bear uh, without really getting a good look at him. Just look at the way they walk, you know, a little bear will be, a young bear will be long-legged and will walk fairly straight. A big bear will have his belly almost touching the ground, and he rolls. I mean, just like a monster coming in, rolling from shoulder to shoulder as he walks. And this guy was no question a big bear. So we're keeping an eye on him. You don't want to kill the sows. You know, you want to kill a mature bear. So we're watching this thing come up the riverbank, and he comes up about 100 yards, and then he hangs to the left and goes into the trees. So we keep an eye down there for about half an hour and no bear, and we figured he had taken a hike. So we're sitting there up on this little bank looking across the river, which might have been 50 yards wide, uh, looking for a bear to come out there. And all of a sudden, this thing sticks its head through the brush inside the blind and wolf it. Shit. shit. You want to talk about coming apart. Oh my God. I mean, uh, he just, and I think he was just screwing with us. I really <laughs> do. I mean, because, you know, he walked off before we could get our act together and clean out our pants. Uh, he was, he, he was gone. But I, you know, I always thought about him walking up the hill, snickering to himself. Yeah, I got those guys. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. and he, so he, he just woofed at you, just right in the blind. Yeah, yeah, I stuck his head in the blind and woofed at him. Oh my goodness! What did y'all do? Yeah. I mean, were y'all scrambling trying to get out of there? Or what's the what's the game oh, plan man. then? We, well, I mean, we all 
just about jumped in a river. We were sitting on an eight-foot bank, and, and you know, brush behind us and brush in front of us, God. made a brush blind. We all but exited, but he woofed. By the time we turned and looked, he was gone. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, yeah, I mean, you want to talk about a circus. Um, it's It's interesting, though, when you walk in the brush and looking for a wounded bear, you usually had two guys mm-hmm. and, and one guy was doing a traff tracking and watching the ground and the other guy would do nothing but watch the perimeter right because these things would lay up and wait for you now when you're guiding these what 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 do you carry as a, as a uh, you know it's probably the majority of our hunters i'd say 50 percent of our hunters brought a 375 h and h um Personally, I carried a 338 Magnum Wind Mag. Um, I liked that particular gun. It was a Steyr Manlicker, and what I liked about it, it was it had a five-shot rotary magazine in it. So over a magazine gun, uh, you could carry two extra rounds. Right. Uh, you know, it was it was the people that brought the big guns you worried about. When somebody showed up with a 460 Weatherby or a 416 Remington, you, you really had apprehensions only because, one, this is showing you that guy's scared to death of that bear. Uh, two, uh, you know, the majority of these people are going on a once-in-a-lifetime bear hunt, and so they're used to shooting 270s or 243s. Mm-hmm. Uh, they pick up that 416 or 460, and they shoot it once or twice. It rings their bell, goes up alongside their head, gives them a black and blue cheek, <laughs> and they're afraid of the gun. Right. And and so you know, I'd much rather have somebody shooting a thirty out six, which to me was a little lighter than ideal for brown bear, if they felt comfortable with it, than the people shooting, say, a four sixteen Remington. They were scared to death of. Right. Uh, we, we you know, as guides, people come in. You always say to them. Let's go out and shoot your gun, sight it in, make sure it's sight hitting the same place as when you left home because of the movement and the bouncing around. Well, that's only part of it. As a guide, what I want to see, I want to see how the guy handles a gun, how he shoots, and to let me know what I've got to work with off the top. If this guy's scared to death of the gun... And at 50 yards, he shoots a four-inch group. I'm not going to let this guy shoot at 100 yards mm-hmm. uh, because I'm the one that has to go trail that wounded bear in the brush. Screw that. You know, if you've got shoot him or such. And and so, consequently, uh, the guys who carried the big guns or the guys that showed up with all new clothes and yeah. a new gun, it was like, oh, got trouble here. Uh, you know, I like the guys that would show up with a 338 or a 375 that was scarred up and, um, you know, a scope that showed some wear and hunting clothes that were just a wee bit threadbare. You just had a more comfortable feeling as, as a guy. That that's a hundred percent accurate. We do the same thing here, waterfowl hunting. You know, that you, you see the guy in the latest, uh, Sitka gear and taking, popping the tags off as he, uh unpacks everything and we even had a guy here one time he pulls a pulls a shotgun out of the box and uh ask us if we know how to put it together <laughs> yeah yeah i mean that you know same thing in the dove field yeah when you see somebody in the dove field shooting high brass 12 gauge shells because he's got a better chance of hitting a dove 
I'm sorry, if you're shooting behind the dove with low brass shells, they're going to be shooting behind the dove with high brass shells. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and it's, it's, um, it, it, it's interesting as a guide how you assess people. You know, can I put them in the middle of the spread, or is this idiot going to try to turn around and shoot a goose that's gone behind us? Right. You know, so you you really you really have to be able to read people. The guy that jumps up first and has to shoot first uh, has got to have a sh- three shot automatic. You know, you're you're have to treat him differently than than a guy that takes his time, lets everybody crank off, and he's got an over under and and uh, makes two good shots. It's it's just, you know, trying to assess the people and what you've got. We had had a guy show up on a hog hunt here, bought a $7,000 gun just to shoot a hog, and the guy that one of his friends told me, he said, yeah, we call him Cool Whip because he always has to be on top of everybody else. (laughs) And I thought, boy, that's a damn truth right there. Let's talk waterfowl hunting. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk waterfowl hunting, Jim. First of all, Dad told me to tell you hello. Yeah, yeah. I've missed uh, Ron. I haven't seen him for a couple of years. Well, he, he he still looks the same. Just getting a little older, Jim. He uh he tells a story. He, he one of his favorite stories is you talk about a duck blind. I guess when you're in Cleveland catching on fire or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I managed. Uh, I used to. Well, you know me. I love to shoot muzzleloaders, and I've got a <laughs> uh, I've got a ten gauge percussion Scott made in the early 1800s. I call Matilda because it's like one of my aunts big and loud and obnoxious <laughs> um you know and we're we're in cleveland i was playing for the indians at the time and couldn't have been 27 28 and uh we joined this high dollar uh, duck club in wooster ohio just just uh, south of cleveland and uh you know myself and jim norris two baseball players at the club and so they give us the best blind for opening day I mean, this blind was unreal. It, you know, it was 25 feet long and uh, covered with dry reeds and had a refrigerator in it, a telephone, you know, the whole, had a, a whole deck you walked out to it so you didn't get wet. Man, they, they dropped us off there and, um, you know, opening morning we're sitting there and just for daylight I'm starting to load this muzzle loader and I pour in the powder in each barrel and look around for the wads and damn, I haven't got any wads. I forgot wads. <laughs> so, you know, I look in my pockets. Ah, I got toilet paper. Okay, oh, good. So we stuff toilet paper down in it, pour some shot in and some more toilet paper, put the caps on it. And we're sitting there and just right at daylight, these ducks come right at the blind at the decoys and fly over us. And I'm doing an overhead shot. Boom, boom, you know, blue smoke from the black powder coming out and dumped a duck. And so I'm walking out behind the blind to pick up this duck. And I'm about probably, oh, 40 yards behind the blind walking through the muck. Took me several minutes to get there. And and Norris had hit one too, so he's off in the other direction. I bend over to pick up the duck and I'm facing west, and I see this glow in the sky <laughs> between my legs. And I think, you know, what? Uh, no, I was facing east into the sun, and when I look down, you know, there's this glow behind me in the west. And, hell, the sun doesn't rise and rest. Why, what the hell's going around? And I turned around, and what had happened when I shot? 
this toilet paper was smoldering as it <laughs> came back to earth and landed on this dry blind <laughs> and set this blind on fire. My oh, large shit. flames were jumping about 10 feet high right at daylight, opening day at Duck Street. <laughs> These guys come around to pick us up about 10 o'clock in the morning <laughs> where we're sitting in the brush behind this smoldering line blowing the duck calls. This sucker had burned to the ground. Here's a little refrigerator sitting half submerged in the water. Uh, needless to say, they, they said, we tried to call you, but couldn't. Yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> you know? well, yeah, that, that was one of our escapades. Is this Jim Norris, the same piglet that lives in um, Weatherford? Yeah, or Burleson, yep, yep. Burleson, Burleson. Yep. So he, that's he played with you in Cleveland and in for the Rangers. Yeah, he did. Matter of fact, uh, we played double A ball in 1972 in Elmira, New York, together. When I met him, and then in '74 we played in Oklahoma City in Triple A, and I had played in Mexico with the team in the winter in '72 and '74. Those owners came back up trying to talk me to come down and play again. And Jimmy wanted to play, and, you know, I talked to the owners, and they said, no, we don't need a center fielder. That night and, and during a game, Jimmy made two fantastic catches in center field, stole a couple bases, you know, uh, hit a home run, and I go out to dinner with these guys, and they said, well, yeah, that guy's pretty good, you know, we'll we'll play, and so we'll have him down. So the next day in the clubhouse, I talked to Jimmy. I said, well, I had dinner with the uh, owners. Uh, you got to be there October 1st and you're making 2000 a month. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he went to Mexico with us and, and played one winter down there. And then we played in Cleveland at Texas. He was, we, you know, everybody had a CB handle back there in the seventies. and Mine was Emu and his, his was pudgy. And Jimmy was built kind of like a beer keg could run. I mean, I think he stole 40 bases in the minor leagues one year. But he came on the CB and said, yeah, this is Pudgy. And I said, Pudgy, my ass, you're Piglet. <laughs> he's, he's been Piglet ever since. You, you know, it's funny, too, is when when he was up here, and he, he's in the door business, is that right? Or I'm sorry? Is he in the door business? He does something in construction. Yeah, yeah. He he sells sells doors uh, for Masonite to people like Walmart, Lowe's, and such. But when when he came up here, I did not realize y'all played baseball together. And if if you'd have bet me money, if I had to pick a, a ex pro athlete out here, Piglet would not have been the guy that I would have picked as ex pro athlete. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, he built like a beer keg with legs, not really fat, but just big from the waist up and these little pigeon legs under them pigeon you know legs. and yeah and uh, uh good good guy though he was from long island new york and had never hunted and i took him out and started him hunting and he caught the disease pretty good in the late 70s now after the duck mine burns down did y'all kill anything else or did that pretty well cap off your morning oh no no it was it was great I had a uh, uh, black lab at the time, and and Jimmy had a golden retriever, and it was a pet shop golden retriever. And when they went and looked at it uh, to pick it out, it got loose and ran down the aisles and emptied about four different shelves as it ran down the aisles. And so they they named it Bananas because he went bananas. <laughs> so you know, Bananas had to weigh 105 pounds, big golden. So we take Bananas hunting. And 
bananas at this duck and pheasant club. And and bananas, first time out, pheasant goes up, boom, shoot it. Banana runs out and gets it, comes back to Jimmy, sets down and gives it to him. And we both went, my Lord, this is unreal. You know, this this pet shop dog acting like this with no training. We go a little further. The second pheasant goes up, boom, shoot it. Banana runs out, gets it, sits down and eats it. You know, oh, so one for you and one for me. <laughs> so, so, you know, this happens several times and Jimmy gets pissed. You know, he's a little embarrassed about his dog. And so he buys a shot collar. So next time we go out, same thing. First bird, banana brings it right back. Second bird, he runs off and he eats it. Well, he starts to run off and Jimmy hits him with a shot collar and it's got three levels. You know, it's got the hello, it's got damn you, and then the third level is you bleeping dog. (laughs) So so Jimmy hits him the low level. Hits him with the upper level as he keeps going. <laughs> hits him with the third level and he finally stops. Well, this works about two times. The third time, the dog learned that he could outrun the distance of the shock collar. <laughs> so he'd pick up the pheasant and start running, and Jimmy would nail him with the third level and, <laughs> and just keep going until he ran out of the distance, yeah. and then he'd sit down and eat it. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, working with dogs are great. Yeah. I remember one of your guys, Danny from Louisiana, had this wine runner. Shadow. And, Shadow. 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 Yeah, and, and Shadow was the first time I went out this wine runner was, was steady to shot, would do doubles, would do blinds. I mean, this dog's awesome. I said, I've never seen a wine runner like this. Second time we go out bird goes down danny says back shadow and shadow looks at him and lays down now not my day i'm off today (laughs) dogs hunting with dogs are just absolutely awesome yeah you you get a lot of stories that way for sure oh it's you know yeah yeah well your dad's dog beavis was probably one of the best dogs i've ever seen on geese but even those dogs had their quirks you know they just what they were thinking. I can remember one day Beavis taking off across the field after Ron set him on a blind, and he passed he passed the goose that was laying there dead and just kept going almost out of sight, and Ron's yelling and screaming and goes over a little hill, and, I mean, he is just yelling and screaming, madder in hell. Here comes Beavis back with a goose. <laughs> this thing had to be 400 yards away. Well, when it was shot, it flew away and cratered. Mm-hmm. You know, it might have flown a quarter mile and finally died in the midair. We didn't see it, but the dog did. And the dog went and got it. And Ron comes back. He's hoarse from screaming at the dog. <laughs> and it's like, you got to be kidding me. This yeah. dog's smarter than you are. Yeah. You know, Beavis had his last hunt. He, he, we finally had to put him down when he was about, I don't know, 12 years old. But um, I, I, we figure he retrieved probably over 20,000 birds in his life. But um, Bob Hood came up, and they Bob took pictures and was on the last hunt with him. And then Bob passed away, you know, not long after that also. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, memories are what life is made of, and uh, the dogs can definitely generate a bunch of them. You got a lot of memories, Jim, because you've got. A lot, I've heard you tell lots and lots of stories. One of the things really remarkable is you come from a very small town in Michigan, don't you? 
Yeah, it was twenty five thousand back then. And you had three guys. Three guys you graduated with played pro baseball or was on your baseball team, didn't they? We did. Uh, we had won the state championship in uh, nineteen sixty seven. This little town beat Detroit Hamtramck for American Legion state championship. And out of this small town, we actually had four uh, wow. that uh, that did. Dick Lang uh, was a pitcher, outfielder, the pitch for the Angels. Uh, Terry Collins uh, managed the Mets, the San Diego, Houston, and then uh, had had another guy named Vern Rule who pitched for the Tigers and the Astros, and then myself. Um, you know, and I I attribute. Uh, this large amount of people that made the major leagues out of a little bitty town to the great coaching we had there when we were young. You must have been hell on wheels when you was playing Little League Baseball and Triple A or American Legion. I'm assuming nobody could hit you. Well, I could throw the I was playing semi-pro ball when I was 16 years old because I could throw the ball harder than anybody. But interesting enough, I was so wild that I played junior varsity baseball when I was a junior in high school. Wow. And and, and being a wild pitcher kind of has to get into the batter's mind. Uh, you know, I don't want to I don't want to stand get in, there. in their ribs occasionally too. <laughs> <laughs> when, when, when were you drafted? What round? I wasn't. I I was never drafted. I went to all the tryout camps begging and uh, in uh, American Legion State tournaments, I struck out 21 batters in nine innings, uh, one game, and then the championship game. Three days later, I struck out uh, 19 uh, people, so I had struck out 40 hitters. And in the last 18 innings, I pitched as an amateur, and Cleveland offered me a thousand dollars to sign, uh, which put me through a year of junior college. I never really wanted to be a major league pitcher. I was playing minor league baseball, putting myself uh, through college. Now, where do you have more fun at, in the minors or in the majors? Oh, in the majors. He had no a lot doubt, of fun. In the, minors. <laughs> in the minors, you're riding buses and, and uh, you know, eating at McDonald's and stuff. In the major leagues, you never touch your luggage. You're eating in all the finest restaurants. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, after you go to the major leagues and you get sent back to the minors, it's, it's like death. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a couple of them cup of coffee call-ups? Well, it, it didn't, uh, I came up, um, like I said, I was wild as hell. I spent four years in A-ball, two in double-A and one in triple-A. Uh, my last year in double-A, I think I... Oh my! I was twelve and seven, and my last year in AAA, I was seventeen and seven. Struck out four hundred batters my last two years in, in the minor leagues, and then came up to the major leagues, and then got sent down for a month in '75 because Cleveland had traded one player to Texas for four players, so they needed a room on the twenty-five man roster, and I happened to be the one that got sent down. Then uh, injuries up and down late in my career. Uh, I destroyed an elbow in 83, tore a couple tendons off it and a ligament in half. And, and I played another three years after that. I didn't get anybody out, but I looked good in all the uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> now, you had the Tommy John, is that Tommy John surgery, what you had? 
Well, I didn't have the Tommy John surgery. Uh, what they did is they braided that medial collateral ligament back together rather than replace it. You so, played against Tommy John, didn't you? Yeah. Uh-huh. So what do you think about these kids now that are doing baseball year-round? What do you think about that? And then I'll give my opinion. Well, you know, uh, according to Dr. Andrews, who is one of the premier uh, surgeons, orthopedic surgeons uh, in the U.S., it's hard on the kids because uh, you're wearing out the equipment at a young age when it isn't really able to take that kind of a beating. Right. And, you know, to me, I encourage my kids to play whatever game they want to play. Mm-hmm. I think it's better for them to play basketball, baseball, uh, football, whatever they want, and do more than one. Uh, you know, of all the kids that play baseball, and some get college scholarships, and a few go to the minor leagues, only one out of every 25 that play minor league baseball will ever see the major leagues. Wow. And so... To me, uh, you know, this baseball, this club baseball where you travel all over, is more for the coaches than it is for the kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, you know, the kids aren't enjoying their childhood. And, you know, it's all all baseball or all football or all tennis, whatever. So you have a very limited scope. Uh, you, You have to prepare yourself for life and not just one thing that you've got a one-tenth of a hundredth of a percent of making the major leagues. Uh, so to me, it's, it's counterproductive. When I talk to kids about, about college and sports, you know, I tell them to look at it this way. You, you look at sports as a short-term, high-return investment. Right. And college is a long-term uh, much more steady uh, re- return because no matter how good of an athlete you are, if you're a Bo Jackson or if you're a Mickey Mantle, you make one wrong turn, one wrong cut, one wrong throw, tear something up, and you're human again. Mm-hmm. You know, and and the education you've got something to fall back on, or even a trade school. You know, in this day and age, it's much smarter to get a degree in welding or a, a trade school degree in welding than it is a degree in political science you'll never be able to use. And and you don't have that huge debt hanging over your head when you get out. Right. Yeah, I uh, I saw something the other day that parents are um, they're ready for their kid to get the Tommy John surgery just so that it's out of the way. I mean, what kind, yeah, of, what is, kind of thinking is that? Well, you know, it's, it's short-term. It's people living vicariously through their kids, uh, hoping, pushing them to do what they weren't able to do when they were young. Uh, you know, it's, it's, um, you look at the number of Tommy John surgeries and the idea there is with these parents is that, well, if they reconstruct it, they can tighten it up. Right. So you can get more speed than you had originally. Well, (laughs) I mean, I've gone through, I've spent 54 months of my life rehabbing something I've destroyed. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't mind the surgery, but the rehab is, is an absolute bear. And you're always wondering, uh, is it going to work? How well is it going to work? Am I going to tear it up again? To me, anything you do, you buy a new car and you replace something on it, you've degraded the integrity of that car. Sure. It's longevity. You know, it's... Uh, 
Yeah, I put big tires and big wheels on that truck. <laughs> Your mileage will go from 15 to 9. The front wheel bearings will last half as long. Yeah, it's like putting a winch on a vehicle. I, I refuse to put a winch on my truck. With four-wheel drive, I go where I shouldn't go with a winch. With a winch, I'll go where I shouldn't go with a helicopter. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good way of looking at it. Jim, in all your years... Yeah. All your years and all your travels. Who the most? Who are the, some of the interesting people? Who the most interesting person you've ever met? Oh, met a lot of interesting person. Boo Powell was probably one of the greatest people people you'd ever want to meet. More stories than you could believe. Uh, six foot five, and when he played in Cleveland late in his career with me, he was about two seventy. Uh, Pat Dobson <laughs> used to call him the Great White Whale. Uh, <laughs> Booger Boo Booger was just an awesome personality. Gaylord Perry honoriest individual you would ever want to meet but one of the best people a heart of gold you know he, he's kind of like your old man uh jeff you know rough and gruff on the exterior but a heart of gold mm -hmm. inside yep. it's just chipping chipping past all all that stuff on the outside to get to the inside you know gaylord was like your dad uh when he got on your case he liked it when you got back on his case, you were his friend. <laughs> if you shied away and flinked away, he didn't have much use for you. Yeah. Did, did you it ever just play? just you a tougher individual. Did Kirby you ever... Jenkins, uh -huh. one of the best people you'd ever want to meet in your life. Did you ever play against Pete Rose? Did play against Pete Rose. Um, you know, Pete was probably one of the best baseball players of his time. Pete's only downside was he didn't have wing as vocabulary. He didn't have we in his vocabulary? Yeah, it was I, I, me, me. Yeah. You, do you think he do you think he should go to the Hall of Fame? Well, as, as far as pure stats, yeah, there's no question. Probably, you know, one of the greatest hitters, him and Ty Cobb, Ted Williams, they're in a class over and above everybody else. As far as moral integrity and, and integrity of the game, no. Right. So you, you, you've got two ways to, to do it. Is, is the game strictly on stats? Well, you, you got Roger Clemens, seven-time Cy Young, Barry Bonds, four million home runs, uh, you know, and the same class as Pete Rose. You know, if, if he bet on a game, if he admitted betting on a game he was managing, uh, then it follows you've got to figure he bet against this team occasionally. So... You know, it's just that integrity thing. Uh, is it important or is it not? You, you told me one time the most, I, I i don't know the word I would use for it, the best character of any ball player you ever was around, you said was Nolan Ryan. Well, yeah, no, Nolan was in the class in the self as far as character. Nolan was quiet. Uh, Nolan was laid back with one of the most intense competitors you ever met. You know, he just, he got on the mound. He enjoyed being on the mound because he could screw with the hitters. Uh, Nolan had not only the best fastball in the world, he had the best curveball and the best changeup in the world. Uh, and the intensity he had uh, was was phenomenal. Uh, his workout, workout ethics in late in his career, in his late 30s, early 40s, He'd pitch nine innings, then he'd come in and sit on the exercise bike for half an hour, 45 minutes after that. And, you know, uh, it's just like Tom Brady. Uh, Tom Brady's workout ethic is so great, he's able to do things late in his career that nobody else can. 
uh, athletic ability and then that attitude. Uh, you know, Kenny Stabler partied his way to a Super Bowl and you know, he eventually killed him. But uh, <laughs> Brady Brady is, is the other way around. Is uh, you know, Kenny Stabler had the, more the fun. Workout, yeah, the, the workout ethic might, might kill him uh, short in his life, too, but it's making him a fantastic player into his 40s. Well, I knew one thing. Nolan was the same way. Nolan whipped Robin Ventura's ass at old man, when he was an old man. Well, that, 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 was, that was the problem. Robin Brent Ventura changed his mind halfway to the mound and <laughs> had to complete it through, you know. <laughs> Robin Ventura... Uh, at the end, realized that, yeah, I've got to get back in that batter's box. This may not be a good move, you know. And uh, when you charge a mound, you know, you're, hell, that, that's pitcher's opportunity, which Nolan took. Mm-hmm. That that was the old joke after, after that incident was, who was the only player ever to get five consecutive hits off Nolan Ryan? <laughs> Robin Ventura. <laughs> Yeah, you know when Nolan got him in that headlock, it was like it was an oh fuck moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, with baseball fights, it's punch, punch, pile. So you take your best shots as quick. So, so back then they they wouldn't eject you for getting into a fight. No, they threw him out. They threw but him out, but you after still he whipped his yeah. ass. Yeah. But grudges carry yeah. over in baseball. Yes, big time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. They can, they got to get back in the batting box. How would you describe? How would you describe Ted Nugent? Because you and Ted are friends. See, see a little Theodore. different. Yeah. Well, the, Theodore was another guy that was probably one of the best guitarists ever, ever invented, shall we say? Uh, and, and again, Ted is heavy on me. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Out, outspoken, brash. Uh, exactly what the NRA needed as a spokesman to counter the antis uh, Ted's not a bad guy uh, believe me Ted Ted is very intelligent uh, one of the most talented guitar players you've ever ever seen uh, but Ted likes Ted and Ted doesn't <laughs> give a damn what anybody thinks about him he's gonna speak his mind yeah he was on the podcast with us, and I'm going to say he's one of the smartest people we've Very had on here. Knows his numbers forward and backwards. I mean, he knows his shit. Oh yeah, and, yeah. And, and when yeah. he when he gets into an argument with an anti, I mean they've they've just got no leg to stand on. He just tears them down. Well, that that's just it. Is is when you counter emotion with facts, emotion yeah. is wanting. Yeah. No that that that's exactly right. Um. Were you were you around when did uh, when did steroids start coming into the ball clubs? Was that later in your I'm career? Sorry. When when did steroids start coming in, into oh, into the ball clubs? Steroids steroids came in uh, probably late seventies, uh, early eighties. Conseco was the first one. I can remember he was playing with Oakland at the time, and he ended one season maybe uh, six foot four. 210 mm-hmm. he showed up the next season in spring training six months later at six five and a half at about 250 Oof. and uh, you know you, everybody looked at each other and went <laughs> okay who's who stuck the air hose up his ass <laughs> you know and yeah yeah it was just and he was really big about it uh he wasn't afraid who knew it and uh, uh 
did, at that time, go ahead. Did they piss test you back then? No, they didn't no. test you. They asked three things of you. Is that you show up on time, give 100% while you were there, don't embarrass the ball club off the field. That is all they asked of you back in that time frame. Was uh, I'm going to ask you this now. I had an argument the other day with someone, the greatest Texas Ranger baseball of all time, and this guy was trying to tell me, he, he said Michael Young. I say Pudge Rodriguez was the greatest Texas Ranger baseball player. Yeah, you've got a good argument there. Young has got the uh, most hits ever. Uh, yeah, I'd have to go with Pudge. I think he's got 13 golden gloves uh, behind the plate. Uh, you know, probably one of the best. I think if he's not on the same level as Bench and Fisk, he would be a hundredth of an inch below it. Mm -hmm. uh, the only thing Pudge didn't have was five. Uh, everything else, everything else was there. an absolute gun. Uh, didn't have the power Bench had. Uh, you know. As, as far as intimidation, as far as blocking the plate, he didn't have the size of fist or bench, but uh, uh, probably one of the best three or four catchers in the last fifty years. So could bench and could bench throw the ball as well as Pudge did, or did bench bench was bench to me was that I ever saw was the best catcher I ever saw. And I pitched to Fisk, you know, played against Carter and everybody else, but Bench was just in the class by itself. Um, Bench could sit there from a squat and throw a guy out at, at second base. Wow. Uh, Bench, uh, everybody I, I threw to, I could handcuff. If they called a slider down away and I threw a fastball up and it by mistake, everybody else would jab at the ball, you know, like, like, you could see your fool the catcher. Bench would just reach over and grab it as if that is the pitch he called. Uh, Bench had phenomenal power to right center and left center field. A big power hitters who pitch outside, assuming they're going to try to pull the ball, so you try to make him hit it in the big part of the field, which is center field. So you pitch Bench outside and you take it to right, right center and, and crush the ball. Uh, you know, Bench was just big, intimidating, uh, probably one of the smartest and best baseball mans. Fisk, Fisk was an awesome baseball man, uh, and I'd say he was a hair behind Bench, but not not much. But, you know, I pitched to some pretty good catchers, Fisk, Bench, Sunberg, but there wasn't anybody could touch Bench. So, uh, Andy's a big Red Sox fan. Tell us about playing in Fenway Park to me, that would be I, I would say Fenway Park is the coolest park in baseball, from strictly from just some fat guy watching TV. Uh, Fenway, to me, the epitome of a baseball game was a Sunday afternoon in Fenway. Mm -hmm. it, uh, it, it, it just, you had, you had the history, uh, you know, Chavez Ravine, Dodger Stadium, everybody talks about. I wasn't terribly impressed. Yankee Stadium, big cavernous hole with the most obnoxious fans in the world. <laughs> uh, you know, just 
the, the backstop was 120 feet behind the plate, so you were kind of like you were out in the middle of a platter playing. Fenway, you might have had 60 feet to the backstop. So, the, so much like old Ranger Stadium, Turnpike Stadium, the fans were in close proximity to the field. They were part of the game. Yeah. Fenway and Ranger Stadium were the only two parks in all the ballparks combined in both leagues that if you made a good play as the opposition, they would stand up and give you a standing ovation. Wow. Everybody else would boo you. Yeah. But to me, the epitome of baseball was Sunday afternoon at Fenway Park. Uh, um... ne- ne- never played there. I mean, never played for them. You know, and that's just unbiased opinion. But uh, to me, a game in New York, Yankee Stadium, old Yankee Stadium in Fenway, there wasn't a whole lot of comparison. I think at Fenway, I think I heard that the first row is closer to home plate than the pitcher is. Is that is that that's, that that that's very possible. Fenway is is close. I tell you what, uh, we and, and it gives you a different perspective as a pitcher too, with with the stands close uh, to the catcher. It looks like you're a lot closer to the hitter. Right. And the Yankee Stadium it's hundred and twenty feet away, it looks like the hitter is in the next area of coach. Right. I can tell you this much, we went to Fenway Park. It's not a place built for fat people. <laughs> no. When they say thirty eight thousand people, they mean thirty eight thousand skinny people. Yeah, and see we draw that in a season in Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you ba- you played back in Cleveland back in the bad days, didn't you? That was a big old stadium oh, you played yeah. in there too. Yeah, I mean, there were days in Cleveland in the 70s, late 70s, where you could physically count every fan, and you knew you didn't count the one twice that went to the bathroom. <laughs> Is that demoralizing as a player, especially as a professional athlete, go there and there's nobody in the stadium? No, not not really. Not really. You, you know, as a player on the field, the fans are academic. The only time the fans really help you is when they're yelling and screaming for your neck. Uh, <laughs> I mean, actually, the the people that are able to excel are the people that can take that adverse uh, propaganda that's coming at you and channel it into what you're doing. You know, it, to me, uh, what they affectionately call snowflakes to get offended at everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you told them they got two different color socks on and they're stressed, you know, and they want compensation for it. Bullshit. That makes you stronger. Yeah. Uh, you've got to take that stuff and make you a stronger person. I'd like to have these people in Marine Corps boot camp. I was in in Paris Island in 1969. Uh, it, it makes you a stronger person. You enhance or you reward that weakness by taking it away, that situation away, these these people are going to get weaker, not stronger. Do you uh, do you ever do you ever recall where someone got on your ass and you got back at them? Uh, yeah. Oh hell yes. It's uh, that's how you get in fights. You know. <laughs> uh, I'm talking about in a baseball game. Oh, in, in the baseball game, sure you did. Sure you did. Uh. But the better thing was is is when you came into Fenway Park on a Sunday afternoon, you're up one run in the ninth inning with one out, maybe, and everybody's screaming for your neck and telling you how 
how terrible you are and how you're playing for such a bad team and how your team sucks. The best thing was to keep your mouth shut, strike out two people, and walk off the mound like, I don't hear you. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Subtlety drives people nuts more than getting in their face. Hey, did you ever play with Don? Did you play for Don Zimmer ever? Uh, regretfully, yes. <laughs> he wasn't a good manager? I, I didn't care for Zim. Uh, Zim was like Jeff Torborg when I played for him in Cleveland. He split the team up into my people and your people. And instead of a team concept, you had the good guys and the bad guys. And uh, I, I didn't care for Zim. Now, what, um, what about Yogi? I, Yogi was an absolute piece of work. Never played for him, but Yogi was, got along with absolutely everybody and and had more jokes than you could ever believe. And financially, anything Yogi touched turned to gold. Uh, Yogi was an absolute ten. You know, the kids today they don't they don't know who Yogi is. They don't know who Zim is. But and and, and that's where baseball I think has changed, and it's not helping them. Much. They don't have any characters like they used to a long time ago. Or if they do, I don't know who they are. Well. You, you do, but they're, you know, you're offending somebody. Right. Uh, you, you know, or you pitch inside, you're going to get suspended. You know, it's it's uh, making everything middle of the road and safe. It's, it's uh, uh, everybody's afraid to give somebody else a nickname because they might be offended. Right. You know, in in the major leagues, when you came and the veterans gave you even something like Emu, uh, you embraced it. Because they were accepting you, mm-hmm. you know. If they didn't like you, then they just left you alone as if you didn't exist. Um, you know, I've to me, Emu is my alter ego. It, I am, I am more, more than impressed and thankful that the guys gave me a nickname. It's, it's the baseball me. It's Emu's a wild and crazy guy I used to intimidate hitters thinking that this guy in the mound with the hair and the wild beard screaming at himself really doesn't care. In the major leagues, the talent was so close. If he could erode somebody's confidence, you gained an edge. Right. And that's what the game was all about. Well, you know, you're, you can't, just like you said, you can't breed characters and you can't breed life into the game if you're taking the middle of the road and you're making everything safe and keeping everything PC and everybody happy. You're just, you're not going to have those characters like you had back in the golden day, golden days of baseball. No, no, and they're just trying to make everything generic, you know. Uh, it, it's just like education. No one left behind. You're reducing it to the lowest factor so for the kid that has the most trouble in school can be at the same level as the one that's easiest. And so you're dumbing everything down, and in the long run, you're helping absolutely nobody. Yeah. It's just like not keeping score uh, for these Little League games. That's the dumbest thing ever. The kids are keeping score in the dugout. I guarantee you they are. Yeah, and, you know, to me that comes from a lot from the parents that could never quite measure up to – the, the people that were the best on the team, and so they're trying to um, live vicariously through their kids, and you you teaching winning. Uh, winning is everything when it comes to professional sports and in life, too. Yeah. You don't get paid for being a salesman and not selling anything. You don't make the same thing 
you know, everything should be given to us. Bull, you earn everything. That's exactly right. Well, Jim, I would like, I know we've kept you a long time today. I'd like you to come up and bring them black powder guns up here. I want to shoot some ducks with them. Just don't burn our shit down. Oh, all you got to do is make it out of steel and we're safe. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll be hunting out of a A-frame and it won't be, it won't burn up. But I'd sure, <laughs> I'd sure like to have you bring them guns up and come do a shoot. You shot the only perfect limit I know of in Haskell County ever. <laughs> well, I've got a, I've got a pair of percussion 10 gauges, a 16, a 14. Uh, I've, I've got a myriad of them. I, I love the old guys. They, uh. You know they're they're getting to the point where they're as slow as I am. Well, would do you, you do, do you remember the day we had Bob put out there and I brought a couple? He was sports writer for the uh, Star Telegram in Fort Worth. Brought Bob out one of the first times I brought him out to your place. I brought a pair of percussion ten gauges, and we're laying in the blind with four or five other people, and it was a foggy morning. I mean, you couldn't see the end of the decoy spread, and we're laying in these blinds, and you could hear the geese get off the ground a mile away. You could hear them coming to your calling, but you couldn't see anything until they bust through the fog, probably not 30 yards from you. Well, Bob and I had shot probably two or three volleys, and this blue smoke is hanging in the air. It's kind of an inversion with fog, and it got to the point where the other hunters wanted to kill us because now with the blue smoke hanging in the fog, you couldn't see 10 yards. <laughs> and Jeff shouted, put those damn things away. <laughs> Back in the day, that is a long time ago when I was guiding hunts. Well, Jim, yeah, yeah. well, Jim, I'd sure like to have you come up and see us again. We saw you a couple of years ago. Uh, you brought a biologist with you from South Carolina, I think. Is that right? Yeah, it was my uh, niece's boyfriend uh, from Clemson. Interesting kid. Is is he still part of the family, or did she get rid of him? No, nah, no, nah, she trashed him. <laughs> <laughs> she 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 finished her doctorate in, in uh, marine biology and moved back to uh, uh, Boise, and uh, uh, she moved on down the line, shall we say. That'll happen. Well, like Jeff said, Jim, I really appreciate your time. I hope to see you really soon, and uh, we'll get you in here and get you on another podcast soon. Sounds good. Hey, Jim, wait, give everybody your your website. Uh, My website is emuoutfitting.com, emuoutfitting.com. Anyways, if y'all want to get a good trip to Amazon, do anything, Jim can hook you up on any kind of hunt. If I'm going anywhere in the world to go shoot something, Jim Kern's first guy I'm going to call. Anyway, Jim, thank you so much, bud. I appreciate it. Look forward to seeing you again. Okay, have a good one. All right, bye-bye. Well, Jim's a neat guy. Yeah, he is. I can see him and Ted hanging out together. Oh, yeah. he Jim's had lots and lots of stories up here. A lot of them we didn't talk about on air. But he's got <laughs> lots of great baseball yeah. stories and hunting stories. Jim, I met Jim the very first year I was in business, I guess the sec- that second summer. that I'd been in business one year, and me and Tony went to a hunting show. I met Jim Kern and Steve Barber the same day. I'll be damned. You know, two really good old friends that I've known forever, and met them that same day. I remember meeting them. I walked by, and he said, Emu Outfit, and I told Tony, I said, that guy used to play pro baseball. His name's Jim Kern. And he's the Emu. And he was in our booth was right next to him. Got to be friends with <clears> him. <throat> we went to Fort Worth the next weekend and, and had a booth together. And then I went to San Antonio and ran a booth for him there at the Texas Trophy Hunters. 
Peculiar how things work out. Yeah, Jim, Jim's a good guy. Got lots of stories. Gosh almighty, we went down to the celebrity deer hunt one year, and you know Albany, Texas has got a baseball field. Their their, their high school baseball field looks like a minor league. Mm-hmm. And Jim and a bunch of pro ex pro baseball players used to do a celebrity hunt there, and they raised money and they built that. Huh. And we went down to the uh, Stasny Cook Ranch. Johnny Hudman, a friend of mine, runs it, and went down there and went to a. Uh, dinner and they had nolan ryan and ted nugent and all them were there and wyman was on the hunt with ted nugent one time on it and that's how wyman met ted ted yep anyways jim's a neat guy he knows everybody in the business was a very very good baseball player historically had one of the greatest seasons ever Mm -hmm. if he played today the kind of pitcher he was he would be an all-star making 10 or 15 million a year it's just crazy. I mean, he was just amazing because back then they counted saves different. Back then you had to actually have the tying run on base mm-hmm. to get a save, rather than just being a just being. You can pitch two innings and get a save now, right? Or if you're up by three runs, you can get a save. I don't think that's right. Yeah, it is. If is you it? if you go in on if you go in and pitch the ninth and y'all are and you're winning four to one, you get a save, huh? Well, when Jim was when Jim was playing, you had to have yeah, the winning it. run on base or or a batting. Uh-huh. So they didn't count saves like they did. And um, I was reading earlier, like one of his seasons, like the nineteen seventy five season, he went he he was the American League. He was fourth in the dang Cy Young. Uh, Finishing. Yeah, he finished the season. I saw it a minute ago. Oh, shit, where did he go? Anyways, his 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 stats was absolutely amazing. Um, where did it go? I saw it just man go. He had a one eight. He had a one eighty two year one year. God dang it! Where the hell did it go? Ten and ten and seven, a two point three seven ERA and fifteen saves one year. I mean, he just he was he was unhit he was unhittable. Mm-hmm. You couldn't hit him, or he'd hit you. <laughs> That yelling on the on the mound, I can see that getting in people's heads. Yeah, Jim had this big old bush afro looking shit. Look like he looked like he could have been one of Charlie Manson's guys. <laughs> but Jim, first time he come up here, he got that smile and he just comes in and yeah. you've you've been around Jim many times yeah. your whole life basically. He's been around us forever. But anyways, Jim's a good guy. It's a good story. I'm glad we got him on here. We tried to do this earlier last year. And we had phone service and we or yeah. we had. Hell with getting him service on here. So that was last year, right before to- uh, Trophy Hunters. Yep, and then we were going to do it at Trophy Hunters. Yep, he didn't make it. Anyway, glad to get him on. Yep, glad to have him on. Jim's a really neat guy. Good story. A lot of baseball was a whole lot different thing then. Baseball was a big part of the American culture. Not in the seven. No, it's not. It's over. But in the sixties, the golden days are over for baseball. It is baseball and NASCAR done. Just because, like we said, PC killed everything. Because you're not going to have the smoking in the dugout, the cigar smoking in the dugout, which, you know, take that for what it is, but that's that's the character of everything. You're not, like he said, you're not going to have the nicknames. I, I'll paint you a picture from 1978. Paint it while I go pee. 1978, a team called the Bonham Bandits. Ron Stanfield was the manager, skipper, coach, whatever you want to call him. He was the boss of the team. On that team, he had nine or ten kids. He didn't want any more than that because he didn't want to play anybody else. And he had a kid on his team named Goddammit Scotty. And he called him Goddammit Scotty because that's all he would holler at him. Goddammit Scotty, throw the ball. Goddammit Scotty, pay attention. Goddamn Scotty, look up here. Goddamn Scotty, do this. Well, when the game was over one time, his mom comes up. And Dad likes to call her. She looked like a hairy Muslim. She comes up and she talks to him and she wants to know why Scotty, her son, 
doesn't get a play, but one at bat per game and only playing the outfield one game. And Dad said he goes by averages. And she said, oh, you go by batting averages. He said, nope. I go by the averages of when, goddammit, Scotty's in there, I've got 18 pissed-off parents. When, goddammit, Scotty's out of there, I have 18 happy parents and just two pissed-off parents. So I'm going to go with the averages and have the 18 pissed happy parents and just the two pissed-off ones. So, goddammit, Scotty left. But Dad would coach baseball with a pack of cigarettes rolled up in his shirt sleeve, like you see Edward around here. I'm back. And usually drinking a Coors Light at Little League practice. Now, can you imagine today that no. going on? And the sad, not the sad thing is the thing was, that was probably half the Little League practices mm-hmm. across America were the same way. Yeah. Dad works all day. Dad was either fireman or he owned a painting company and pulled up there and had been working and would coach baseball, take his time to coach. Yep. And the other parents, they didn't give a shit. And and I promise you, when Dad coached, it wasn't please do this, please do that. It was God damn it, get your head out of your ass and do this. Mm-hmm. We're playing little league football one time. We was playing against the Vikings, and I was a tailback for the Giants. And we're playing them, and I'll never forget this. We're all black team, and Dad tells me to kick them in the shin. Mm. He said, "If you kick them boys in the shin," he said, "They quit trying to run. They'll, they'll, they won't run that ball no more." So here are my team is we're out there kicking kids kicking in the shins. Kids in the shins. <laughs> and the next time we played them, they had all their knee pads down around their shins. <laughs> but That's that was funny. the way it was then. I mean, people didn't get upset and pissed off. It was life. Yeah. We've man, we've ruined such a great place. Yeah. With all this bullshit, politically correct shit. Anyways, talk about something else real quick. We're gonna talk just a little bit of po- not really politics, but just some funny things I I think. You know the thing in Paris that burned down, that was horrible. Mm-hmm. And they think that maybe there was some arson involved. They, they don't, don't think that your brother thinks no, that. No, 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 no. I read some stuff last night on it. I'm sure you've read a lot of stuff on it. I didn't read nothing that he wrote. But anyways, they've had a lot of church fires around there. But anyways, it's talk that maybe it was a terrorist attack. And this is what I was going to get into about it. Whether it is a terrorist attack or whether it's not a terrorist attack. If it was, do you think the French people are going to do anything? Um, if it come I, out I, today that ISIS I, or whoever said we 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 burned that place down, I don't know. I mean, I don't I'm not that well read in French politics, but uh, they're pussies usually. You know, they're saying that it was part of the remodel. Re- remodel, that was going on. right? Evidently, somebody left something plugged in. That's I what I'm figuring. Felipe or Jim fucked up and. Yeah. Had a boo-boo and probably going to get fired today. Oh, yeah. <laughs> probably probably going to get fired. Steve Barber's calling me. Yeah, probably uh, probably going to get the boot, but I, I don't know if they will or not. I mean, what would you do in America if someone burned something down like that? Because, I mean, it's not really a group. I'd just get them. I mean, you really, but can you imagine burning something like that up on purpose? Even, even a historical mosque. I can't stand Muslims, but I respect them enough that I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. History's history. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the Confederate statues. I just don't. Why would you do anything to that, that? That to me, if someone burned that down on purpose, that's horrible. I think they should find them. Yeah, and and I have. Absolute, I don't think it should start another war. No, no, I'm with you on that. No, I, I, I'm just asking you. What What do you think? What would you do if you were the president of France and you found out some inside group of Hamas sure. or somebody done that shit? You'd have to find them. I mean, I would annihilate the fuckers, but. We can't keep we can't keep turning our back on this shit. If this is what happened, I mean, we've gotten to a place in the world where we're letting the Muslims are bullying everybody around, 
And what's funny is the the, the stupid bitch from up north that's one of the, the lady from Minnesota. Omar. Omar. You know, oh, and all, and all that President Trump's doing is, is getting people fired up. No, you're the one that's making people mad with sure. your stupid comments about 9-11. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't have, I don't hate anybody. And we've had some Muslim guys have hunted here. Mm-hmm. We had a couple couple years, two years ago, we had a group here. They were really nice guys. Mm-hmm. I didn't have nothing against them people at all. Nope. I don't trust them. I just any t- you know anytime you go to war against an ideology, it's it's a, a hard battle to win because it just you know we have destroyed ISIS, but there will be another terrorist organization with the same faith. Yeah, they're Muslims, and they, they're going to pop up again somewhere. So fighting an ideology is very very tough. It's a losing battle. You you talk to anybody, and they you know they'll tell you the same thing. So uh, I think that you have to find the people if. And this, it's all speculative. Yeah, nobody knows for no, sure. I'm just asking everybody's your saying Everybody is saying that it burned down because of construction. An um, accident. Y- your brother put some cockamamie idea that there have been church fires. There have been a bunch of church fires. So, you know, the fringe is saying, well, it's probably a Muslim that burned it down. I don't know. I'm not going to. Well, conspiracy theory is always going to say that. I'm just I'm, asking I'm not, you. I'm not going to speculate. The, the, the phrase, uh, big if true, it, it's all speculative. I don't, I mean, it, it, it's a tragedy what happened. It's a piece of history. Um, if, if it is arson, they should find whoever did it of whatever faith it is and string them up because it's a landmark that they never going to get back. No, it's horrible. I, I read, or what did they say? 52 acres of lumber. Yes. Took went a, into building took 200 years to build it. Wow. You know what I was looking at when I was looking at it? Probably not a single tape measure in that whole fucking. No. Building process. Fuck no, Mennonites throwing that somebody up in four days. <laughs> I need to get some Amish guys there. <laughs> but can you imagine that top shit? I don't like heights either. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, you know, 900 years ago. Yeah. I'm sure that, I bet they didn't have OSHA then. No, no. <laughs> no. Well, what a horrible day for history. And not a fucking screw gun inside either. No, shit. Doing it the old fashioned way. <laughs> bam, 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 bam. And they saved a bunch of paintings from it and stuff, yeah. and that's good. Well, I they have. Said, they said they moved a lot of the stuff out before the renovation started. So, I don't give a rat's ass about going to Paris. I could me give either. two shits if you gave me a trip to Paris tomorrow, mm-hmm. and I could trade it in. I'd rather go to Henrietta, Texas, and go to Paris, France. Nothing about it at all. There's a time I would like to go there. I, I, I wouldn't. I don't want to go to Europe no more. No, I'd like maybe. to go to the mother country, Italy, maybe, and see where my kin folks come from because it's out in the country. But I, none of that stuff. They've catered. They've been over backwards to Muslims and they fucked their countries up. Poland is a perfect place to go because they don't let Muslims in, I guess. Yeah. They have zero problems with them. And that's what the United States is going to have to do. We're going to have to. Minnesota, one of the greatest states in our country, man, hunting, fishing, good people. And they're overran by the fuckers in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. And I know the people in Minnesota are sick of it. Yeah. They have. And them fuckers have eight kids. Here's the problem. Conservatives, you need to start fucking and having kids. That's a problem. We don't have enough kids. We can't afford them. You young, that's right, because we got to pay for our own shit. Mm-hmm. But you young people that's listening to me, go knock your wife up today, okay? We no, got to have more. No. You, you and Jesse ain't gonna have any more. Two. Well, I mean, just uh, no. I'm, we're not having eight. I can tell you that. Are you gonna have a third one? I don't know. We're not having eight. I can tell you that. I'm we're asking, not gonna have five. We're not gonna have four. Definitely. I'm so, asking about a third one. I don't know. Can't tell you. I can tell you from watching you sometimes stressed out that you're not on board with that right now. Right. You'll forget how miserable you are when Jameson gets about three. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do like Trump's idea, though. Which one? Sin, sin. You, you're all for illegal immigration? Good. 
We'll send them to the sanctuary city. They're showing the hypocrisy of the left, too. Yeah. On that shit. Did you see Cher? She was on his side. People are starting to wake up. They say L.A. I haven't been to L.A. in a long time. Don't want to go back. But the homeless are everywhere there. Yeah. Tent cities and shit. San Francisco's a cesspool now. Yeah. But, yeah, send them to the send them to the sanctuary cities. They're fine with it. They yeah. said that if, if we get one, you know, if we get an illegal immigrant, we're not going to turn them over to you. They're safe here. And you want my next bold prediction I'm going to tell you? Huh. The Democratic candidate for president is going to be the gay mayor from South Bend, Indiana, hmm. Mayor Pete. Has he said he's going to run? He's running. Oh. And he's starting to go up in the polls, and he's the big new thing. He's gay guy openly kissed his husband on stage. Oh, the left's in love with him. Mm-hmm. It's going to be between him and Bernie. Dad's shaking his head over there. Bernie doesn't have a shot. What, what do you think, Dad? Do you vote for Bernie or the gay Pete? If you had to vote for one of them. I might call him sick. <laughs> Dad call him sick. Gay Pete, you watch. I don't think they can call him Gay Pete. We can claim that on the Big Honker podcast, but I don't think the news is going to pick up on Gay Pete. What do you think Trump's nickname for him is going to be? Because you can't go Gay Pete. I would. Who's going to get offended by that, really, other than the left? I know gay guys that wouldn't. They know they're gay. Maybe Flamboyant Pete. (laughs) That would even be funnier than Gay Pete. Flamboyant Pete. But you watch. He's going to start. You watch. He's he's the Donald Trump for their, their party this year. Up and comer, I shouldn't use that word probably, but <laughs> but he is he is the he's going to be the new darling for a while. I, then I, cre- did you then Creepy Joe is going to get in? Creepy Joe don't have a chance. Even the people in their party are starting to call him. No, yeah. Beto's done. Beto's done. Beto found out he cheated on his taxes. They found out, so they got to make an amendment and pay some extra money. <laughs> but the whole Democratic Party's fucked up. They're fucked. When Bernie Sanders is on TV, it does not give Trump credit for the economy. Well, who the fuck it would you give it to? Obama. It was for uh, unemployment. Was uh, I watched a little bit of that? He's full of shit. He, and then he got pissed off when they asked him about being a millionaire. I didn't see that part. Yeah. I tuned in late. I didn't watch much of it either. We had a but. we had a stressful day. We dropped Payne off our youngest mm-hmm. to boot camp or to Oklahoma City. He left to go to boot camp. He's got nine weeks. Then he gets to go to his good school. Uh, and that's really basically it. That's what's going on in the life of the Big Honker Podcast right now, Lodge. Yep. We're going to have Dad on in next week. Dad, when do you get your shot? Monday. Monday. Next week we're going to have Dad on the podcast with us again to deal with him. Uh, Tony Vandemore has agreed to be on the podcast. I have not got a date solidified with him yet. Tony's a busy man. Oh, well, yeah. We get a hold of Tony. Um, goose, goose report right now. Not goose report. We was in Oklahoma City. Graders, babies everywhere. We was at a coming out of cheesecake factory, and there was a pair of graders there. Had eight babies with them walking across the main street at the mall, at the Pin Mall. Walked right across the street. Traffic stopped. And here goes the mom and the dad and two mm-hmm. babies, or all the babies. Then at Home Depot parking lot, we saw one sitting in the parking lot. Geese everywhere up there, and all have babies. For hunting locals. It makes me wonder what's going to happen in North Dakota, though, and all that, because all, South Dakota, all that flooding and shit they're having. Might not have locals this year. Oh, it's going to be an interesting year with all the flooding going on, and uh, it's going to be interesting. Anyways, that's all I had. We've, we've kind of meandered on, meandered on. Jim was a really good guest. We'll have Jim on again with us. Yep. Uh, if you need anything, you holler at us, stanfieldhunting.com. 940-658-3172. If you want my home number, just message me. I'll do it. If you're, if you're one of my fa- uh, my Facebook followers, which I have a few more than Andy does, my Facebooks, I'm, I'm, I'm in Facebook timeout for 7 until the 22nd, so won't be no more politically incorrect posts for them. They, they hammered me yesterday. 
I shouldn't have said goat humper when I referred to the Muslims. Got to do better. All right. Thank you all for listening. God bless you all. Goodbye.